Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, climate change is changing what grows in Appalachia and where. Some peach varieties usually found in Georgia moving north. They're starting the season earlier because it's getting warmer earlier. And they're setting those poor little trees for a late frost injury. We also learn how the bean dish for Holes Charas made its way from northern Mexico to Appalachian, Ohio. Customers come from Texas, California, Florida, and the United States or work in the construction. Hey, amigo, you have a frijoles charros. And we revisit our interview with Crystal Wilkinson, who was named Kentucky Poet Laureate in 2021. My grandfather, his love was quiet. I, I think I do remember him saying that he he loved me, but not without provocation, not without me saying, I love you, granddaddy. And then he would say, I love you too. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. A bowl of brothy pinto beans is comfort food for a lot of folks here in Appalachia. In southeast Ohio, one man is serving up soup beans that remind him of his childhood home. For Holes Charos, or Charo beans, it's a popular dish among the ranching communities of rural northern Mexico. Now, they're on a menu in the former coal town of Wellston, Ohio. Folkways reporter Nicole Musgrave has this story. Walking off the quiet streets of downtown Wellston, Ohio, and into Viva Jalisco, all my senses light up. A lively mariachi waltz plays throughout the dining room. The walls and booths are decorated with brightly colored depictions of agave farms and Frida Kahlo paintings. The scent of garlic and onions and chilies wafts through the air. I'm greeted by Juan Rios, the owner of Viva Jalisco. Good, good. I'm Juan. Juan, I'm Nicole. Uh, nice to meet you. It's good to meet you. Juan okay. takes me back into the kitchen, where a pot of frijoles charros is simmering on the stove. This is for uh, charros, uh, frijoles charros. Uh-huh. Right now we cook probably another 20 minutes. Juan moved to the U.S. when he was 20, and since then, he's primarily worked in restaurants. He started out bussing tables and washing dishes. Then he learned to cook, and eventually he opened his own restaurant. Juan's mom gets a kick out of the fact that he's learned to cook. I never cook it myself in Mexico. I just let my mom and my sister cooking, and we come in here, you see, we cooking now here. My mom laughs at me because, as you see, you're in the United States and you're cooking now, yourself. Yes, right? <laughs> so when you were learning to cook in the restaurant, did you ever call your mom and ask for advice? Sometimes, yeah, yeah, sometimes. I said, Mom, can you tell me how to make this? Okay. If she know that how to make it, they, they told me how to make it. One dish that Juan remembers his mom making back in Mexico City is frijoles charros, or charro beans, the same dish she's making today here in Wellston. Charros in Spanish means cowboy, so the name frijoles charros harkens back to the stew's history as an important food tradition in rural ranching communities of northern Mexico. In order to sustain the workers during long days of herding cattle, the stew is packed with protein. Along with beans, frijoles charros is heavy on the meat. In his version, Juan cuts up three different kinds of meat to add to the beans. Uh, bacon, uh, hot dogs like a 
we call salchichas and the ham. So this is we cut it. Juan says that growing up, frijoles charros was something the women in his family made for special occasions or large gatherings, like weddings, holidays, and quinceañeras. He explains the soup beans were served at the beginning of the meal. Before you got your meal, you got your pinto, your frijoles charros. It was for you started. And you can get like your chips or your tortilla. You just pour a spoon in a house out, you pour onto your frijoles charros and start eating before your meal comes. Yeah. So it's like an appetizer. Yes, yes. In addition to being a staple at family gatherings, frijoles charros is a common side dish in restaurants throughout northern Mexico and along the U.S.-Mexico border. But historically, it's not something that's often seen on menus at Mexican restaurants in southern Ohio. Elena Fallis grew up in northern Mexico and moved to Ohio at the age of 17. Elena lived in Ohio for 30 years, where she went on to teach at The Ohio State University. These days, she's at Texas A&M, but is also working on a digital oral history project about Latinas in Ohio, which is being archived at the Center for Folklore Studies at Ohio State. Elena thinks one reason that charro beans aren't as visible in southern Ohio might have to do with spice. I would say that the fact that traditionally charro beans have been spicy, that might be what maybe makes uh, Mexican restaurant owners not make as much or not have it in their menu because of the level of spiciness. Elena explains that when she first moved to Ohio around 30 years ago, a lot of the Mexican restaurants in the area were white-owned, and they catered to a mostly non-Mexican, non-Latinx audience. So they were cautious about not making their food too spicy. And the food they did serve was often a kind of Tex-Mex. When I say Tex-Mex, is um, you know, the meals that um, always come with rice and beans and maybe um, cheese, right, on top. The um, influence of, like, chips and salsa always at the table, which you don't always find at restaurants in Mexico. Elena says that over the past decade or so, more and more Mexican-owned restaurants and taquerias have popped up in Ohio. And they're offering dishes geared towards Mexican and other Latinx consumers. Things like menudo and tacos made with tongue and tripe. I don't think I've ever been to a, uh, a sort of traditional American uh, restaurant that ever has tongue in their menu, right? So I think that a lot of the Mexican restaurants that are Mexican-owned in, in Ohio have this sort of mix of dishes in their menus. So you do have some dishes that have more of a Tex-Mex flavor, and then you have other dishes that are clearly uh, more for the Mexican consumer. Elena says that having that mix of dishes is a way for restaurant owners to survive, while also maintaining a taste of home. And she says, it's an invitation for non-Mexican customers to try something new. Back in the kitchen at Viva Jalisco, Juan adds a large can of jalapenos to the pot to give his soup beans some heat. So we pour jalapenos. With the juice, you see the juice? Uh-huh. And we use la costeña sliced jalapenos. Okay. So let's keep it a little bit spicy. When Juan first started working in restaurants around southern Ohio, he noticed that most of the customers were weary of spicy foods, 
So frijoles charros wasn't something he put on the menu when he first opened his restaurant. But now that he's been in the region for a couple decades, he's seen a shift. People are requesting more spice. We're here for almost 20 years. We, a lot of people start asking for hot sauce, jalapenos, put jalapenos in my fajitas, okay. And customers have actually started asking for frijoles charros by name. Sometimes it's Mexican or Mexican-American customers who are in Wellston for travel or work. Customers come from Texas, California, Florida. They probably travel in the United States or work in the construction. Hey, amigo, you have a frijoles charros. But sometimes it's non-Mexican customers who ask for this stew after having tried it at another restaurant. Juan's also noticed people requesting other traditional Mexican dishes that are becoming better known throughout the U.S. Things like tacos al pastor and elote, or Mexican street corn. Yeah, but a lot of people, a lot of American people love it now, traditional Mexican food. With changes in customer base and customer preferences, Juan has started serving frijoles charros once a week on the buffet line at Viva Jalisco. And he plans for the dish to become a permanent fixture on the menu. We uh, got a new menu coming probably in the next few weeks. We want to add uh, frijoles charros and appetizer. And he said that there's also lots of days when there is a pot of frijoles charros simmering on the stove. Customers just have to know to ask for it. For Elena Fallis, she encourages non-Mexican, non-Latinx customers to seek out these foods that might not be as familiar to them. Yeah, you can have your sort of traditional comfort food, you know, or what you associate with Mexican or Tex-Mex. But look for other dishes, right, that they might interest you. They might become your favorite. Um, So why not give it a try? In the kitchen, today's pot of charro beans has finished cooking. Amidst the sound of the on-duty cook cutting onions, Juan ladles me out a piping hot bowl. So you can try the, the frijoles charros. As someone who's not too keen on spicy food, I was a little nervous. It's spicy, but it's not its not too, too spicy. Yeah. But that little bit of pickled flavor is really nice. The smoky flavor, the rich broth, and the acidity of the pickled jalapenos won me over. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Nicole Musgrave in Wellston, Ohio. Beans aren't just on the menu at Appalachian restaurants. They're also on kitchen tables. Like in this next story which Folkways reporter Zach Harold reported back in 2022. Our former co-host, Caitlin Tan, makes an appearance in this story, too. You take all the bad ones out. Our Folkways reporter, Zach Harold, is on the show with us today. So what are, what are we hearing right now? That is my grandmother, Evelyn Adkins, sitting at her kitchen table. She's dumping a bag of pinto beans right onto the floral tablecloth. She's going through them one by one so she can get ready for our weekly Monday night uh, pinto bean dinner. Like sometimes you find a rock in them. And I always pick out the halves, too, because they don't cook pretty. So you're telling me you guys do this every week? Every Monday night for as long as I have been alive. I think a lot of people in our region can probably relate to that kind of tradition. As a matter of fact, I I know a lot of people in our region can relate to that because last year I got on Twitter and asked folks to tell me about a food their mamas made that was uniquely Appalachian. And so many people told me about their granny's beans and cornbread. But, like, 
I'd never thought about beans and cornbread as an Appalachia-specific thing. I mean, you can get them anywhere. Anywhere there's a, a Cracker Barrel or a Bob Evans. And yet it was clear that lots of people from Appalachia identify this meal with home. So that made me start wondering, how did it get to be this way? And I, of course, had no idea where to find the answer, so I just started contacting people who had replied to that tweet. And that's how I ended up on the phone with John Porter. It's really just one of those things that makes me think of home, and it's I think it's you know something that just makes me think of, of West Virginia. Lucky for me, this guy knows his beans. So I am the Urban Agriculture Program Coordinator for Nebraska Extension. Nebraska is the number three producer of dry beans in the country. I would say most of our most of the pinto beans that are eaten in West Virginia are grown in either Nebraska, South Dakota, or North Dakota. John lives in Nebraska now, but he grew up in Wayne County, West Virginia. My dad, uh, his family was, was really poor. The way he put it was we had uh, beans and taters for dinner. And taters and beans for supper. Beans and cornbread is probably what made it possible for people to live in this state. Like beans and corn together. So beans and cornbread is like all the amino acids that you, your body needs. So it's basically like the nutritionally perfect food. I like that. Nutritionally perfect food. Zach, how do you think they figured that out? Oh, this is something Native Americans figured out long before white people showed up. Throughout North America, tribes were practicing what's known as three sisters farming, where you co-plant beans, corn, and squash. If you're, if you're thinking about like a traditional kind of cornfield, what you would imagine a cornfield looking like, imagine that with beans and squash worked into it. That, that was at the scale that it was practiced at by uh, the historic Cherokee Nation. That's David Anderson in North Carolina. I'm the horticulture operations supervisor for the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. Now, these weren't pinto beans, mind you. Those originated in South America. The Cherokee and other Native people had their own varieties of dried beans that they'd raise every season. They'd also raise corn and grind that into meal. So really, a pot of soup beans and some cornbread has been a go-to dinner in these mountains for as long as people have lived here. So if pinto beans weren't being grown in Appalachia, how did they get to become such a staple? Well, it's hard to pinpoint exactly when pinto beans show up, but it was probably somewhere around the turn of the 20th century. Advances in transportation made it super easy to grow these beans in the Midwest and ship them all over the country. And Appalachian folk, frugal as always, realized it was way cheaper to buy the beans in bulk rather than grow their own. That's what happened in John Porter's family. I think my grandmother would, they would buy like 25 and 50 pound bags of pinto beans because they were so cheap. And that's what happened in my family. My mom bought them in 25 uh, pound sacks. And they probably last us a week, maybe. <laughs> my mama Ev's mother, her name was Memory, had eight kids and a husband to feed and not a lot of money to do it with. Back then we had beans and taters or taters and beans. That's about all we had to eat. Gravy and biscuits for breakfast. <laughs> and Memory taught my mama how to make beans and taters and biscuits and gravy, too. See, Memory was diagnosed with breast cancer when Mama F was about 11 years old. 
And that was a death sentence, more or less, in those days. So in the time she had left, memory taught Mama how to cook. It was partly a matter of survival. All of Memory's other daughters had moved off and started families of their own, and Mama would be the woman of the house once her mom was gone. But I think it was also a matter of legacy. This was a poor family. Memory didn't have any family heirlooms she could hand down to her daughter. But she did have recipes, and they would be something that Mama could remember her by. So hold on a second. Does your grandmother still make beans the way that her mother taught her? Well, yes. This is something I did not realize until reporting this story. I have been eating my great-grandmother's pinto beans for my entire life. Mama Eve still makes them exactly the way her mom showed her. So I'm going to wash them. After she picks out all the rocks and the ugly beans... She rinses what's left and puts them in a crock pot with some water, a few slices of bacon, a little bacon grease, and some butter. I guess that's about what? Two tablespoons of butter, maybe. I never measure anything. And the pot's ready to boil. And the next evening, yeah, she cooks them all night and most of the next day. We gather at her house for dinner. It's me, my wife Whitney, our daughter Sadie, my mom and dad, and my sister Jenna. It's the same guest list every week. This is also part of the nostalgia that beans and cornbread evoke, right? It's not just the food. It's the ritual surrounding it, the people we share that ritual with. If history or economics or necessity had worked out any other way, my family might gather around the table every week for a big helping of, I don't know, spaghetti and meatballs. But for us, and so many other families, it's pinto beans and cornbread. Here it goes. I'm just getting a little bit. Now, my sister Jenna doesn't usually eat soup beans. She says it's a texture thing. But she was there when I interviewed Mama, and she heard all the history behind these beans that she's been turning her nose up to all these years. So this night, she decided she would give them another shot. I don't know why I thought these were disgusting when I was a kid. I don't know. Because they're not. They're, they're good. And you're not to say that because I've got a microphone stuck in your face. No, I'm not joking. Because I, I was prepared to come here and for you to try them and still not like them, and then that was how the story was going to end. I'm not, I'm serious. I'm sorry to spoil your ending, but I actually like them. You guys are good. You're just trying to get on the radio. (laughs) She's saying beans are good. Inside Appalachia, I'm Zach Harrell. Beans and cornbread had a fight. Beans knocked cornbread out of sight. Cornbread said, now that's all right. Meet me on the corner Those two stories are part of our Folkways reporting project, which covers arts and culture in the region. To hear more and see photos, visit our website, wvpublic.org. After producer Bill Lynch listened to these two stories, he was inspired to try the instructions that Zach's mama gave for making soup beans. The recipe is a little different than the way Bill's been making them for years, but he said they turned out really good. Bill says he's planning to make frijoles charros, too. The only problem? He can only eat one pot of beans at a time. Coming up, 
we'll hear about Georgia farmers' trouble with peaches. With changes in the climate, they may not be getting enough time in cold temperatures. It's just like you when you don't get enough sleep, right? You wake up cranky and you're not very productive. What do Georgia's peach problems tell us about the future of agriculture in the region? That's after the break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu slash apply. Cornbread and butter beans and you across the table. Eating them beans and making love as long as I am able. Hoeing corn and cotton too and when the day is over. Georgia is known for its peaches. They're practically a state symbol. You can find peach trees throughout the state. But now, varieties once found only in the southern part of Georgia are moving northward into Appalachia. That's because fruit trees need a certain amount of cold weather, and climate change is resulting in milder winters and earlier springs. It's not just peaches. Climate change affects all sorts of fruit. From apples and blueberries to pawpaws, pears, and plums. Jess Mador has this story of fruit tree migration. It begins in Georgia. At a farm about an hour from Atlanta, peach trees extend across the horizon in endless rows. Standing in the dirt wearing rubber boots and a green jacket is farmer Lawton Pearson. This is his farm. His family's been growing peaches here for generations. I'm the fifth generation. We've been growing peaches here since 1885. Pearson Farm is growing about 200,000 peach trees here. At this time of year, their twisty branches are bare. The trees are dormant. It's a critical time for peach trees. They need hundreds of so-called chill hours with temperatures between 32 and 45 degrees. Without enough cold, they won't produce fruit. It's just like you when you don't get enough sleep, right? You wake up cranky and you're not very productive. This is what happened not long ago, Pearson says. In 2017, we had a a really warm winter. It's not the first time that's happened. And when it's dramatic, it can have a dramatic effect on the flowers. They won't open, they don't pollinate, they don't set. That year, Georgia's peach industry lost roughly 80% of its crop. It's a tricky business. Pearson says even when peach trees do get the chill hours they need to bloom, their fruit can be wiped out by a sudden frost, like last March. Everything was going right, but then March 12th, it got down to 20 for 12 hours. And we were out here burning hay bales and running wind machines and doing everything. The harvest produced just 60% of the farm's peach crop. It hurt blueberries, it hurt us. That's difficult to make a crop when it gets that cold. What they need is a good, consistent, cool winter. Pretty much every fruit tree species needs chill hours. Mirjana Bulotovic-Danilovic teaches at West Virginia University. She's an expert horticulturalist who specializes in tree fruits. In West Virginia, the two major ones are peaches and apples. And as temperatures increase, she says producers are dealing with new problems because fruit trees are really sensitive to even minute changes in ambient temperature. All of this means trouble. 
they're starting the season earlier with this climate change because it's getting warmer earlier. And they're setting those poor little trees for a late frost injury. More flooding and extreme drought are also increasingly common across Appalachia. To help West Virginia fruit farmers survive into a hotter future, Bolotovich Danilovich advises them to diversify and try new varieties that need less chill time. You definitely need to, instead of having, let's say, Golden Delicious, Red Delicious, you're going to go with maybe Pink Lady and you're going to go with some other varieties that have much lower requirement. The same thing goes with the peaches. Soon, she says, West Virginia peaches could look and taste more like peaches that are now grown further south. You're going to be kind of moving some of these peaches from Georgia into West Virginia and replacing something that was a staple in your production. You're going to go down and find some of these Georgia peaches and southern varieties. She says farmers are used to dealing with change and adapting to survive. But numbers show this could get harder over time. Pam Knox is a University of Georgia agricultural climatologist. She heads up a network of weather stations that have recorded more than three decades of weather and climate data. There's ups and downs for sure, but it's definitely been rising. Computer models say that's going to continue, and that's something that farmers are going to have to deal with. For now, across the region, farmers are working with scientists. They're testing new peach, apple, and other fruit varieties that can thrive despite shrinking chill hours and unpredictable growing seasons. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Jess Mador. People who receive benefits from the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, commonly called SNAP or food stamps, will be receiving less assistance starting next month. That's because extra pandemic-related payments are set to end, and that affects Appalachia. WESA's Kate Janmarisi reports. Pittsburgher Michelle Ricketts says the extra money she's been getting every month has been a huge help. It It was a blessing, believe me. Ricketts gets by on Social Security survivor's benefits. She says the additional monthly payments for food just gave her a bit more breathing room financially. That really, like, put me over the top of like not having to struggle at the end of the month every month because that's where I was headed every month. At the end of the month, I'm borrowing money, you know, I'm I'm overdrawing on my bank account, stuff like that. But that help is coming to an end. She's set to lose more than $200 monthly in food aid. The additional funds, known as emergency allotments, had been coming as part of a bill passed by Congress early on in the pandemic. The money was always set to end eventually when the public health emergency ended, though it's actually ending earlier because of a change Congress made in a December spending bill. Ricketts and millions of others will get their final pandemic-related payment this month. Advocates and officials say the impact will be painful. Scott Cawthorn is an official with the State Department of Human Services. We recognize that this is going to be a big change for households and it's happening very quickly. On average, Pennsylvania households receiving SNAP benefits will lose about $180 per month. That's why state officials like Cawthorn say they're working to get the word out so people know the cuts are coming. 
They've also set up a website to make sure people know about other assistance they might qualify for, like the WIC program for families with infants and young children and another nutrition program that helps seniors. But advocates say the strain will fall heavily on already overburdened food banks. Colleen Young is Director of Government Affairs at the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank. You know, we have been talking about ways that we can do the best that we can do to minimize the impact on a community as much as possible. But we do know that food banks in general cannot make up for the loss of the magnitude that we're going to see from the ending of SNAP emergency allotments. Ricketts says she already economizes by shopping at a discount grocery store, stocking up when items are on sale, clipping coupons, and rarely eating meat. That leaves her, and many others like her, with only one place to turn. I'm not looking forward to going to the food bank. I'm Kate Jamarisi in Pittsburgh. For information on connecting with services, visit USA.gov. You can also call 211 in many states, which will either give you an index of services or connect you to the United Way. Much of Appalachia has an aging population, and with fewer services available in rural communities, it's often left to families to care for the needs of seniors. That includes end-of-life care and beyond. But talking about funeral arrangements can be awkward. Tom Nichols is the owner of Bartlett Nichols Funeral Home in St. Albans, West Virginia. He spoke with WVPB's Eric Douglas about ways to ease the conversation. What's what's the process? What do you need to know? What do you need to do? What are the options? I guess when you come in, we'll uh, we'll ask what you what type of arrangements you'd like to arrange for, whether it be burial or cremation or you know whatever else you may have in mind, and you let us know. Then at that time, you know we'll get information. Then we'll show you pricing depending on what we're doing. Say we're doing a burial, we'll go over a general price list, show you our charges. Then we'll uh, go over caskets. And then a vault if you need a vault cemetery. And so then we'll, we'll uh, go into the selection room where caskets are. We'll show you what's available. And then you let us know which one you'd like to use. Then we'll come back and uh, talk about a vault if you are burying in a cemetery that requires a vault. But then once we get that type of thing all done and we get figures and things, depending on how you want to pay, there's two options on how you want to trust Money, you can either trust it or put an insurance. Some funeral homes use insurance to put mom and dad's money into, and most generally, a lot of people use a trust account. If you give me a dollar, you give me $10,000, we had to register it with the state of West Virginia. I think that was the thing that, that astounded me the most or interested me the most was, I guess I guess kind of in the back of your head, some people will worry, you know, how do I know the money's going to be there when I, you yes. know, if I, if it's five years from now? 10 years from now, whatever. But yeah, yeah, this is all secured. The funds are secured and there's a whole yes. trust to, or there's a whole system in, in place for that. Yes, there is. Like uh, instance, like if you do trust, uh, once we put your money in that trust, it's locked and it's secure, can't be used until time of death. Then we are allowed to use that money. 
we have to register those monies with the attorney general and they oversee your monies to make sure we're doing the proper and correct thing. Uh, not trying to, you as a consumer is who they're looking out for. It was the part that interested me the most. I mean, I, I actually got a letter just a month or so later from the attorney general's office saying, you know, this yes. money is secured and, and, and we got it. I, I had no that's, idea that was a, that was a thing. Yes. That's what they do. Once, once, you know, we register, then you do get a letter. Like I said, it can be two weeks to four weeks on average. Uh, you will get a letter from the attorney general stating that, dear Mr. Douglas, we see you purchased a pre-need funeral through whatever funeral home, you know, you selected. And that just tells you we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, registering it. And then when something, when death occurs, then it's what we call, we got to do a death report. And we also got to send to the attorney general with, if the money was in there for five years and it drew interest, we have to show them what interest it grew and if there's a refund coming back to you or, or not. Just because money's in the account, we don't, we can't keep all of it because uh, the interest is what goes with the inflation of our business. And if there's more monies than what you paid or what the, today's price is, then uh, we have to refund it back to the estate. If the price has gone up and it's more than what I put in there, then the funeral home eats that charge. Okay. Uh, you don't pay the difference or anything because you paid it in full like five years ago, like you purchased. Right. And then we, we take the chance on taking that loss at the interest and things, which this day in market, it very seldom keeps up. Uh, what's, what's, the, what's the average? I mean, is it five years? Is it people coming in 30 years in advance? What, what's kind of the average of people coming in to pay for? Majority is older people. But we have, we do have, you know, the middle age and a few young ones that's been coming in just to take care of things themselves. Uh, so they're prepared and so their mom and dad or something don't have to worry about it. They can take care of it. And, and I, I don't even know that I'd considered it until afterwards, after, after when I went through this process with my own mom. Um, it was a relief afterwards. It was a you know what? All that's done. It's all paid for. I don't even have to think about it. I literally just that's, have to have to make a phone call and then show up. Yes. Phone call. And then usually that's just when you will meet one more time to go over times and things of what day you want to try to set schedule and your services and things. And then, of course, coordinate with your minister and the cemetery and things like that. So Now, when, when I took mom in, um, she ended up choosing some things I didn't imagine she would choose. Um, you know, I... I, I and and perfectly fine. I mean, it's not like she didn't, but it was just like, oh, I don't know that I would have thought to do that if she hadn't been there sure. to make those decisions. It helps. Because uh, uh, that way where you didn't know and she told you, you know that that's what she wanted and you don't have to second guess. There's not a doubt in my mind. Uh, she got exactly what she wanted. That's what she wanted. And that's what makes it easy. She helped you and, and no regrets or anything and... That was Tom Nichols speaking with Eric Douglas. The interview is part of the series, Getting Into Their Reality, Caring for Aging Parents. To read and listen to other stories in the series, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Bald eagle populations in Pennsylvania and the U.S. have rebounded over the years, but some are still dying from lead poisoning. WPSU's Ann Danahy spoke with the Certified Wildlife Rehabilitator about the lead in ammunition and its unintended impact. 
Robin Grabowski is the founder and director of Center Wildlife Care. There, they treat everything from baby bunnies to bald eagles. When things go well, that means releasing animals back into the wild. But that's not always possible. Case in point, a bald eagle they recently tried to treat for lead poisoning. Usually when we have an eagle, it takes two or three people to hold them and medicate them and treat them or to take blood. This eagle was so weak, one person could easily pick this bird up. The Game Commission had found it and brought it to Center Wildlife, but they couldn't save it. That's the characteristic signs of lead toxicity is they become very weak, too weak to fight, too weak to fly. Grabowski says there's a simple solution using non-lead ammunition. And it's not just the wildlife. If you're hunting and catching these animals to feed your family, that meat could have lead in it too. And it could be a powdery residue that you don't see. Another option, Grabowski says, is using less expensive lead ammo for target practice, but switching to copper when hunting. In State College, I'm Ann Danahy. Our final segment revisits our former co-host Caitlin Tan's 2021 interview with Crystal Wilkinson. Wilkinson was the first black woman to be named Poet Laureate of Kentucky. A lot of her writing focuses on black women and their experiences in Appalachia. Wilkinson grew up on her grandparents' farm in Casey County, Kentucky. Her grandfather, Silas, raised cash crops like corn and tobacco. Caitlin began by asking Wilkinson to read a poem. She chose an ode to tobacco and her grandfather. Oh, tobacco, you are the warm, burnt sienna of my grandfather's skin, soft like ripe leather. I cannot see you any other way but as a farmer's finest crop. You are a Kentucky tiller's livelihood. You were school clothes in August, the turkey at Thanksgiving, Christmas with all the trimmings. I close my eyes, see you tall, stately green, lined up in rows, see sweat seeping through granddaddy's shirt as he fathered you first. You were protected by him sometimes even more than any other thing that rooted in our earth. Just like family, you were coddled, cuddled, coaxed into making him proud. Spread out for miles, you were the only pretty thing he knew. When I think of you at the edge of winter, I see you brown, wrinkled, just like granddaddy's skin. A 10-year-old me plays in the shadows of the stripping room. The wood stove burns. Calloused hands twist through the length of your leaves. Granddaddy smiles, nods at me when he thinks I'm not looking. And you, you are pretty and braided, lined up in rows like a room full of brown girls with skirts hooped out for dancing. Crystal, that's beautiful. I The imagery that that provokes is incredible. Thank you. Did you write most of these poems in the past year or has it been accumulation of over many years? Um, some of them are fairly new poems. In most ways, this is a book of collected poems, some of them going back for um, a decade or more. But when I looked at the themes, I realized that the same themes that haunt me now are themes that have haunted my writing for a while. And when you say things that haunt you now, can you expand on that? 
Well, you know, issues of girlhood, particularly black girlhood, racism, political awareness, and, and how you gain those things as a young girl growing up in a rural area, how those sort of sociopolitical issues affect a rural person and how they affect uh, an Appalachian person perhaps differently than they would an urban person. It's been a really crazy past year. I mean, obviously, we've had the pandemic and um, quite the presidential election, but our country's had almost this reckoning with social justice issues. I mean, everything from Black Lives Matter and police brutality, but then also more recently, Asian American hate crimes. Um, I'm wondering what what have been your reflections from this past year? I mean, I think it's been a difficult year, but I like to dwell on hope. And my, my hope is that, particularly when you think about what I see as a rising Asian movement that is is parallel to the Black Lives Matter movement, and, and I hope that they become the same movement, that collectively we can make change. I feel like our collective backs are against the wall and it has to end in change. Yeah, absolutely. And that's interesting how you're saying that it becomes like a collective movement and that kind of almost almost one. Right. I mean, I think injustice, um, I can almost start crying when I'm talking about it, but, but this sort of injustice that we're seeing and the lives that are continuing to be lost and people being beat up on the streets um, just for being of Asian descent, this all has to stop in some ways. And we all have to be a part of stopping it and speaking out. And again, I, I mean, I see that marching in the streets and holding government accountable holding the people who are doing this violence accountable, but also holding our individual selves accountable and our family members, even when no one's watching, um, sort of stopping people in their tracks when they say something disparaging about another race or ethnicity is the way that we have to combat it. I think it has to both happen on a national level and it also has to be simultaneously happening on an individual uh, level to uh, be able to evoke change. Um, I wanted to rewind really quick. Can you tell me a little more about your granddaddy? I the, I just love the imagery that came from that poem. Yeah, you know, I think as a, a rural man, irregardless of race, my grandfather, his love was quiet. He was really concerned about providing for his family. We all knew that he loved us. But his main thing was the crops and the uh, making sure that, you know, his daily chores were done. I, I think I do remember him saying that he he loved me, but not without provocation, not without me saying, I love you, granddaddy. And then he would say, I love you, too, you know, <laughs> sort of sternly. Uh, but I think that was the generation that he came from. But I remember being sort of taken aback as a child when I would go with him out into the fields how tenderly he treated, how he doted on his crops. You know, that was one of my, I guess, as an early writer, uh, I made these sort of observations and that was one that stuck with me. Like he really loves this land, 
And I remember thinking, does he love me the same way? And so then I began to look for signs that weren't verbal or that weren't necessary physical signs of affection toward me. And so I think that thought stayed with me all of these years. And uh, particularly these early poems in the first section are sort of an ode to my grandparents. I was raised by my grandparents and, uh, and I was reminded of all of that during this pandemic, you know, living in the city now and being a professor and being sort of tied to Zoom, I got a little stir crazy. And one of the ways that these poems began to bubble up was I started ordering seed last year and I got out there and dug around in the dirt and planted tomatoes and and peppers and um, sort of gave myself sort of an everyday routine in that way when we were sort of on lockdown. Of course, it took me right back to my childhood and remembering those things that I did when I lived back back home in the hills and the work that my grandparents did daily and how important it is and, and was to have your hands in, in the dirt for solace, for nutrition and all those other things too. But, but there's a sort of a spiritual connection, I think, that I was able to return to. And so there's some poems in, in here about that as well. Do you think you will have a garden again this year? Yes. I, <laughs> I um, you know, I feel, I said my ancestors would be ashamed of me because I was so bad at it. Like I went out there with an <laughs> attitude, like I know how to do this. This is part of my upbringing, part of my muscle memory. Of course, I know how to plant tomatoes. This This will be great. And my tomatoes were horrible looking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my squash died. It was just a mess. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to do it again. Hopefully redeem myself as a, as a woman of the hills. And, and uh, hopefully I haven't gotten outside my raisin and remember, <laughs> remember, I can do better this time. Can you tell me a little bit about the title, Perfect Black? How did, how did you come to that? Well, it's part of one of the poems. There's a poem called um, Fat and Black and Perfect. So that's about body positivity. But I started thinking about this idea of blackness. So it becomes a part of the book as well as far as an overall theme. Because I think this idea of a monolith of black people um, so in a way, this book is sort of dispelling these sort of stereotypes about blackness. I think many people think of, of blackness as being a, a rural phenomenon. So I think that so many of us who are, are from the mountains, from Appalachia, are sort of dismissed or, or sort of uh, invisible to mainstream society. They don't really think that we're here. So the title also sort of leans into that idea that a rural Blackness and Appalachian Blackness can also be a perfect Blackness. There is no one way to be uh, Black in America. Yeah, I think it's very important. And another thing that you mentioned was the poem about body positivity. And I, I think that's such an important topic and it's something that a lot of people and especially young people really struggle with. Um, 
So I just, I think that's really cool that you touched on that. Is there any chance you'd be willing to read a little bit of one of the body or body positivity poems? I'll read this one. This one is called Black Body. My black body is a boulder, a stop sign. Sometimes I think my body is graceful, a song of freedom. Sometimes I think it is something that every eye casts away. I must concentrate if I want to fit into small spaces, slip into the eye of America's needle. Twice last week, I went without eating, filling up on self-loathing and discontent, only to give in to a slice of pound cake and a bowl of ice cream. To stay awake, I drink a glass of tea and watch the flawed reality of television housewives. Before bed, I stretch myself out along the couch and place my feet in my husband's lap. I can't stop thinking about the little black girl in the back of Flando Castile's car. Mommy, please stop screaming so they won't shoot at you. At four years old, she saw her mother's unarmed boyfriend shot, bleeding, dead on the front seat. I can keep you safe, she tells her mother. My body embarrasses the famous white woman at the writing conference as if my fat will rub off on her if she gets too close. When I'm sick, I want buttered sweet rice and a tender hand moving in circles on my back. Yesterday, I ate meatloaf, mashed potatoes, and green beans at the Cracker Barrel in Tennessee. The white righteous called me baby doll. Once, I remember feeling the quickening of babies in my womb, four tiny hands pressing against my navel, four tiny feet pressing against my ribs. Wow. Crystal, the way you're able to touch on your your childhood memories and then your your current day experiences and then the Black Lives Matter movement, it's I didn't expect you to be able to touch on all of those in, within one body positivity poem. I I mean, remarkable. Thank you so much. Well, Crystal, uh, anything else you want to share or that you're looking forward to this summer? I just had my second shot. And so I'm looking forward to hugging my children. I'm looking forward to getting out of the house a little bit more and having at least some normalcy to my life. And, And that's what I sort of hope for, for everybody else to be able to get to that. And maybe we can get some distance from this pandemic. So I'm I'm definitely yeah. looking forward to that. And better tomatoes. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> I, I'm going to call <laughs> on my ancestors and hopefully uh, <laughs> they'll remind me of who I really am. That was Crystal Wilkinson. Kaylin Tan spoke with her not long after she became Kentucky's Poet Laureate in March of 2021. Poet Laureate served for two years in Kentucky. So Wilkinson is winding down her term. She's scheduled to appear at the Appalachian Writers Workshop in July. Her upcoming culinary memoir is called Praise Song for the Kitchen Ghosts.
until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Town Mountain, Carolina Chocolate Drops, Sierra Farrell, West Swing, and Paul Loomis. Bill Lynch is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at inAppalachia. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu.